Hello, thanks for downloading or streaming this latest podcast from the University of Brighton. I'm Richard Newman and my guest this week is Dr. Alex Zambelli, Senior Lecturer in the School of Architecture and Design. I met him to talk about his role here at the university and a new research project about urban commons that he has begun working on. I teach a combination of what we call architectural humanities, um, but other schools of architecture called history and theory. Uh, and I also teach professional practice. It's a relatively unusual combination. Often you would expect um, a lecturer in architecture to specialise in either history and theory or to specialise in professional practice. But because I have a, a sort of theoretical PhD that I wrote, and because I've been in practice as well, I ran a practice between 2000 and 2013, I understand things about uh, the making of buildings, the practice of architecture in that kind of hands-on way. So I enjoy that mixture, uh, and that's, that's, that's really important to me, the idea that um, I can go into, come into university one day and I, and I might te be teaching first years about the history of architecture, and that afternoon I might be teaching master's students about uh, contract law, for example, or planning law, or the building regulations. And I find that combination kind of really interesting. And the separation of them kind of artificial as well. I think they're all lenses that we look at um, can look at architecture through so I think there is there tends to be this artificial separation between the history and theory of architecture and the practice of architecture one being kind of ivory tower and ethereal and the other being kind of mucky and on the ground and about building buildings but it's all architecture and these are just different lenses that we that we look at them through. And we'll talk about your research and yeah. your PhD uh, a little bit later on. Can you tell us about your general background, how you've arrived at this point? How did I arrive at this point? <laughs> um, I had a fairly conventional, if you like, um, path through architecture. My dad is an architect. Um, there was no pressure, but um, he enjoyed it. And I remember that very clearly, him talking about how it was such an enjoyable um, discipline how it got him up in the morning and how exciting it was and that rubbed off for me I suppose in the end and I wanted to become an architect. So I went to university, uh, studied architecture, um, takes about seven and a half, eight years if you do it as quickly as you can possibly do it, the average is a little bit longer than that. Um, uh, went out into practice, practiced at a number of small to medium sized practice, all kind of really kind of quite conventional uh, I suppose. Um, but quite early on in that, I did a little bit of teaching as well. And this is quite normal for uh, pra architectural practitioners to do a little bit of teaching, especially if they're quite young or if they're setting up new practices where perhaps they haven't got that much work in, so it gets supplemented by teaching. But I really enjoyed the teaching. And I enjoyed writing and thinking about architecture as well. So in 2007, I uh, did a PhD or began a PhD uh, at UCL in, in architecture. It took me a really long time to do it. it. took me about eight and a half years because I was running my practice at the same time. But I'd given up teaching in order to do those two other things and I really missed the teaching. Um, so by the time it got to about 2013, um, I felt that I wasn't quite getting my PhD finished. I wasn't quite enjoying the practice as much as I remembered enjoying teaching so I gave up the practice at that point um, did a number of part-time teaching jobs ended up here in uh, 2015 um, finished my PhD in 2016 um, and yeah so this is kind of a, a sort of second career for me I suppose very 
uh, and intimately related with my first career, if you like. Again, practicing architecture and lecturing in architecture are, again, for me, two lenses simply for, for looking at architecture um, it, it itself. So, yeah, so that's how I ended up here. So, you mentioned your PhD. Yeah. Can you tell us what that was about? So in, um, I can't remember when it was now, perhaps 2003, I did an evening course in archaeology and I found myself uh, doing a drawing of a, a stone tool and I thought, this is really weird. It's a lot like um, what I do in my ordinary, it's like the day job, if you like. I'm drawing things and here I am sort of in an archaeological context, but also drawing things. And uh, that simple observation led many, many years later to a PhD thesis that looked at um, architecture and archaeology and how they might be how the, the what look like very radically different practices architecture for future facing and archaeology past facing reconstruction whereas architect- architecture is about design um, was in fact design and reconstruction to me looked like very similar activities that we might gather together fragments if we're an architect client briefs things about technology that we know who might make a building from those from those fragments and an archaeology an archaeologist similarly might uh when they when they're digging in the ground they might find fragments there and they might understand something about the social context within which the culture they're digging operated within and from those fragments they'll reconstruct a building or a or a culture and this these kind of two kinds of these two sides of the coin for me design and reconstruction um, through the medium of drawing because archaeologists draw as well they draw very like us um, uh, it, this, this similarity between these two um, objectives that look like different objectives became um, apparent to me that they were, they were the same thing really so that's what I wrote about Did that just sort of come about that observation come about by chance you said that you, you took this evening course yeah. was that because it was uh, just a general interest of yours and yes. then this came from it it's, it was a general interest of mine uh, in archaeology but uh, it's it's become clear to me that uh, many architects have an interest in archaeology and as I as I as I thought through in the argument in my PhD that's because they're very connected disciplines historically that architects and archaeologists um, would in the past have been have been the same person quite quite often. So you might have gone to the Roman Forum and drawn the ruins that you found there, and then you might have made some reconstructions from the ruins that you found there. And the people that were doing that were trained to be architects, but they were practicing a form of archaeology before archaeology even had a name or became a, a discipline in, in its own right. So this. Um, this confluence, this similarity in, the dis- in these two disciplines, the fact that they were the same thing, I think means that it, it's still kind of there. Come the, name, come the 19th century, disciplines become professionalised at that point and um, institutions begin to build boundaries around their, their own disciplines to protect, to protect their own markets, if you like, their, uh, their own customers. Uh, and that kind of artificially separates... Uh, the fact that these disciplines were actually quite fluidly intertwined uh, at one point. So that, that was the basis of the, the kind of historical context of the, of the PhD. It also meant, entertainingly for me, that I got to sit in a muddy field occasionally and draw, um, draw archaeological artefacts. So it was important in the PhD that I was doing that I performed some of the things that I was talking about. So as an architect, I would uh, practice... Uh, towards archaeology as I put it so I can't stop being an architect and I'm not an archaeologist I haven't had that training but if I do archaeological things what does that mean 
for the practice? What, what's the status of a drawing that I might make if I'm uh, using the tools and techniques of architecture, but within an archaeological context? So again, those observations formed the practice. There's a practice-based PhD that I did. So those observations performed the practice part of, uh, of the PhD, and it was good fun. Yeah, I mean, you've, so you, would you continue to go back to that every now and again then? Because you spent a long time doing the, the, the PhD. Do you feel like you've moved on from it now or could you go back to it? Uh, I would love to go back to it. I'm trying to go back to it. Okay. Um, it's, it's less easy to find, for example, funding for um, that, that, kind of, that kind of research, that kind of quite abstruse um, theoretical although practice-based uh, research, much easier to find, I'd say easy, that's, it's all relative, but easier to find funding for other kinds of research, for example, the commons-based research that I'm also doing. So this other strand of research that, um, that, that I'm doing means that I have less time to do the things that originally got me into research. But I'm, but I'm in the process of uh, working with some, some colleagues, some archaeological colleagues, some archaeologists, um, to do to get back to uh, some of that some of that research as well, and we'll come to what your, your the research you're working on yeah. shortly. But from your PhD, then you said I think you said that the the, the history of architecture part that you teach, I guess, is, is the kind of led on from from the PhD. The the history and theory that we teach in schools of architecture, um, there, there are varieties and there are different ways of teaching history and theory of architecture. But um, certainly here and in many places, and I, and I, and I think it's a good thing, we, 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 you need to get across um, an idea of a kind of canon, if you like, that there are, these are the, the architects and this is the architecture and these are the movements of an architecture which are significant. Here and in other places as well, we also like to point out that, although the canon, by the very definition of of it seems to be this immovable body of information actually new things are always always coming in and you could tell a different story about architecture as well so certainly um in in the um the the modules that i that i teach into as well as the canon being taught as a series of very of of practitioners and historians and theoreticians we we come from very different places uh, in in the school and so we're always invited to come in and also talk to our students about our particular interests or our particular angle if you like so yes I don't ever miss an opportunity to talk about archaeology if I can if I can do it to, to my student to, to my students um, but it's not considered central to, to the history and theory uh, of architecture, at least amongst architects. So it's always um, is likely to remain a sort of peripheral um, interest as, as far as they're concerned. But it's good for students to see that there are these peripheral interests as well, these, these other stories about architecture. Especially if, as you were saying, your colleagues, everyone comes from a different background. Yeah. So it just opens the student's mind a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it's, it's important that they have... Um, the, hist- the historical and theoretical tools which you would expect any architect to have, um, but it's also important that they're exposed to um, o- other ways of thinking about the history and theory of architecture as well, that there are um, alternative narratives about um, how we come to be living in the places that, that we live. Um, yeah, for sure. And you also teach professional practice as well. I also teach professional practice, yeah. So professional practice would cover things like um, the sorts of contracts that architects have with clients. 
the kind of contracts that there are between builders and clients. So if you want a building built, then you've got to decide the method that you want to employ uh, in order to get that building built. Do you want to go to an architect and get them to completely design that building from uh, from beginning to end, all the nuts and bolts, and then go out and find prices from builders and get someone to build it? Or do you want to, an architect to give you an outline design and then take that outline design to a number of builders to see which of them will give you the cheapest price, but which of them is also most expert in building it? So that's the difference between what we call traditional building contracts and design and build building contracts so there are standard ways of doing those things and architecture students need to understand the basic principles behind those also things like planning law what what kinds of buildings um, can and could and should we be building in certain certain contexts um, and building regula- regulations laws as well so um, how does the building you're about to build that you're designing how might that uh, affect its environment um, will it stand up? Is it properly ventilated? Um, all of those sorts of uh, characteristics. And as well, and it's not taught enough, I think, often in architecture schools, but the ethical responsibility of, of, of the architects as well. And we do that quite well here, uh, I would say. So all of those things which aren't about actually um, putting one brick on top of another um, or uh, the history and theory of it, it's like, how do you, and um, we call it, procurement how do you procure a building so i want a building how am i going to make the building happen over there what are the the legal legislative uh, frameworks which enable me to make that happen and we have to be experts in in that as well so i teach that you mentioned that this is almost like a second career for you do you miss practice at any point because you said that you when you were practicing couldn't teach you miss teaching do you find it the same the other way around Uh, that's a really good question um, I, I didn't miss any of it for quite a while. I certainly don't miss sitting across a table from a client trying to get them to pay me <laughs> um, what they owe me. Those are very stressful things. So, you, and if you've got some people that you employ, then uh, you're you know you're you're responsible for them to a very real extent. I don't miss that. Weirdly, I also do miss. Those, respon- those responsibilities as well. Um, because you get a buzz when it's done? Or is that kind of... Yeah, a buzz when it's done, but you get a buzz, not even so much when it's done, but you get a buzz from uh, the fact that it's happening well, mm. that the, the procedures, everything's, everything's working like a well-oiled machine, and there's a real satisfaction in that. And by that I mean that the building's working on site, your practice is liquid, um, uh, that you have... Uh, staff who are enjoying themselves and, uh, you know, and look forward to coming in each day. So all of that, when that works well, is is a is a is a wonderful thing. Um, but um, I missed more the life in the university. The the idea that I might just go and have a chat with someone about a research project that I'm doing. That they might be collaborators, or I might go and sit down and talk to the guys in Resp who are going to help me put the the research project together or I might have an idea for an exhibition or a conference that I want to put on and then everyone's falling over themselves to help me do that and uh, that's enormously enjoyable and those sorts of conversations weren't happening enough in in practice so I don't miss that. Let's talk about your research then 
um, what's the, re- the, re- the research that I'm actually being paid to, uh, to do rather than the, the, the archaeological stuff that <laughs> I kind of have a secret hankering for that no one will pay me to do yet. That's the one. Yeah. Um, so, so if we take away that one for, for yeah. a moment, yeah. what, what is it you mainly specialise in? So the principal research uh, project that I'm, that I'm doing is uh, a project that I'm doing with Newcastle University uh, and some other institutions now as well, but Newcastle University were the instigators uh, of it. We're looking at uh, English urban commons. Um, so there's been lots of research done about common land, and most common land is rural common land. But there are fragments of ancient common land that still persist uh, in or very close to urban centres. Uh, and some of the survivals of those are kind of miraculous in a way because people want to build over things. Um, uh, for example, in Newcastle, their town more, and this is what instigated the project as far as they were concerned, right in the middle of Newcastle, so you come out of their university and there's a kind of uh, an A road and you pass under the A road and you're still in the centre of the city and you're confronted with this vast tract of what looks like moorland uh, and so I, so I went there for the first time and with, I was with some colleagues and I said so what happens on the other side of that? I said well you can't quite see it but on the other side of that Newcastle carries on you know where this is right in the heart of Newcastle so this is a bit of land that cattle graze on as if it were rural common land um, but it's right in the centre of the, of the city. We want to write about that stuff and I said um, apart from the cattle grazing we've got something a little bit like that in Brighton, we have Valley Gardens, uh, and I'm interested in Valley Gardens. Um, lots of people here are. Lots of people in the School of Architecture and Design over the years have run pro- projects based there because it is such a remarkable strip of land. I mean, I, I, it's it's a kind of weird bit of common land. It's not it's not technically a common land anymore, but we know that it used to be, uh, and so where our research encompasses all of that, that uh, those kind of categories. But I'm sure your listeners know, but the kind of the, the or perhaps some don't, the, the strip of land is it's it's long and thin and stretches all the way from uh, Palace Pier in the south uh, and stretches all the way almost to Molescombe uh, in the north. Uh, it's never that wide, and sometimes it almost disappears and becomes a sequence of traffic islands in the middle of nowhere. But I kind of quite like that about it. It has a really strong urban characteristic in that way, quite different from Newcastle. We needed more uh, case studies, so we have a couple of other urban commons. So with these colleagues, we won an AHRC bid to study uh, English urban commons for three years to understand their past, to think about how they're currently being used, and to, um, to think about how we how they might be used in the future, how we should use them. Um, so that's that's it in a nutshell, I suppose. Big nutshell. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I guess that the question um, about what how they be used in the future is is an interesting one because how do they remain as uh, urban commons rather than be built on? How 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 is that space that that sort of more land in Newcastle still there in the centre yeah. of town, for example? How's it lasted? Well, well, one of the things we want to find out is how have they lasted? We have some ideas about uh, uh, about those things. I mean, there are ancient laws that um, that uh, protect certain aspects of them. A whole series of new laws periodically get uh, instigated. So in the in the 60s, you had to register your common land uh, if you thought it was a common, and if you didn't register it, it wasn't a common anymore. Um, that's probably what happened 
uh, here, um, although the loss of it might have been, as actual common land might have been earlier. Um, often it's land that's a bit expensive to build on because it's a bit boggy or marshy, and that's certainly true of, uh, of valley gardens. Common usage, people just using it all the time and, and putting up a fight if people want to, to, to do things to, to that land. So a combination of things. It's one of the reasons why looking at the past of the commons is an important aspect of understanding their future. So if we understand better how they've persisted and lasted, then um, perhaps we can replicate that in some way or think about new, new kinds of institutions or, or laws or ways of thinking about them that will protect them for, 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 future, for future use. Do we want to protect them for future use? I mean, all of the at the moment we've just started the project. The project's about a month old, yeah. so um, all of those um, possibilities are up for grabs uh, at the moment. We want to be o- as open as possible in thinking about about that. And, and Valley Gardens must be an interesting one then, if it was previously Collins. That's not really, it's not anymore, but it's treated as such almost, well, isn't it? Well, it's it, it's interesting in the sense that because it's fragmentary, that there are there's there's old steam and Victoria Gardens and uh, the, the the green space, the strip of land that St Peter's Church is on, and then you get the level as well. Each of them um, has very different characteristics from, from each of them. Uh, we expect to find that, uh, that, the, that the legal structures and the histories of each of those are very different uh, uh, from each other. So we think probably that no one set of laws or reasons exist or pertain that make them make, make it kind of survive holistically. It survives because each of them has its own um, uh, stakeholders, I suppose we, we would call them today, who've, who've looked after its, uh, their, their interests. But the history will be different f- for each of those for each of those fragments. So quite different probably from all of the other urban commons that we're looking at, which, which feel as if they've been protected and looked after uh, much, more, much more holistically. Yeah, yeah. Be interesting to see how that all turns out in yeah. what three years time. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, we end every podcast by asking um, four very simple questions. Same questions in every podcast. Yeah. First question: We're chatting off air. Might be a little bit more problematic for you because you're not from <laughs> you know you know you live around the area. But I live in, um, I live in Croydon. I live in South London. Okay, I, and I commute by train almost every time I come down here. And I um, sometimes I'll walk up from Brighton, and sometimes I'll get the little train to. Uh, to to Moorscombe. Okay. But, but so this it, is your favourite place in Sussex. This one. But 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 this but it occurred to me when I um, when when we were uh, I was thinking about this question that uh, that the, the, the train journey through uh, parts of Sussex was pretty special. I remember the first time I came down um, to I, everyone comes down to Brighton from London, right? But the first time I came down and it was a place where I was going to work and and I and I just looked out across. The absolutely staggering landscape, and I, I was on top of what I now know as the Ouse Valley Viaduct, um, uh, and it just it just sets up views on either side of this kind of high-level train track, uh, and it's different every day. I was just looking at it today with the kind of the summer trying to happen across it, and the kind of slightly reddish fuzz on all of the kind of trees as they start to buzz, uh, bud. Um, so that would be that would be pretty special, I would say. Valley Gardens, as well, of course, would be another another place that um, ha- has other 
about now and developing associations for me in, in Sussex too. What are you currently reading, watching, and or listening to? You can you can pick all three or just one or two. I've got a I've got a slightly embarrassing soft spot for crap science fiction. Okay. And uh, so what's in my bag at the moment is the latest uh, paperback by a science fiction writer that I like called Alistair Reynolds, and it's a book called um, Lysium. What's it called? Lysium Fire. It has all of the tropes in it that make science fiction such an object of ridicule in in some ways but it also does some really interesting things and uh, central to the story is um, the manipulation of uh, polling data um, which which feels pretty relevant uh, at the moment I would say <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm also the other, the other thing I'm reading actually also occurred to me is that I'm rereading my PhD at the moment which is a really interesting slightly terrifying thing to do because I've just got a contract to turn that into uh, a book um, a much abridged version, so I've got to pick it up and read it, read it all over again, which I haven't done for a, uh, a really long time. How many pages? How many pages? Um, I don't know, but it's about 100,000 words. Right. But I've got to turn it into 35,000 words, so actually that's a really painful process of, of pruning and, uh, uh, and, and editing. So, uh, yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, can you describe your perfect weekend? A perfect weekend. Um, the, the weekends I really like. Um, I get, I get my partner is uh, grew up in Australia, so I'm lucky enough that I uh, that we get to go to Australia quite regularly. Every two or three years, we we, we go over there and spend time with her folks, um, and we go for four or five weeks. Um, and uh, and what happens is that you lose the boundary between the week and the weekend so my favourite weekends are the ones where I don't even know it's a weekend and it's just blurred into completely into, into the week and it's slightly slightly terrifying feeling when that when that happens but kind of quite nice as well mm. so four to five week weekends in Australia that sounds yeah. alright yeah no that's uh, kind of um, quite nice and if you can pick uh, three people to come to dinner yeah. um, past or present who would they be and, and, and what would the reason be behind them okay when I when I was kind of younger there were two books that I think were kind of crucial and seminal to to how I grew up the kind of architect that uh, uh, that I've become I suppose one was by uh, a famous American popularizer of science Carl Sagan who wrote Cosmos and his book it was the book was a, a book that accompanied his TV series at, at the time but his kind of sense of wonder um, all the time undercut with a sense of scepticism, proper scientific scepticism as well, I think has been really influential for me. And then when I was a little bit older, uh, there was a, a, an art book. There's a book called Shock of the New, written by um, a sort of grouchy Australian um, uh, art, art critic called Robert Hughes. And, um, and I remember that book was really, really important to me for, for lots of reasons. One is it was a real eye-opener in terms of how one might think about art and architecture. Um, but also I was very ill at one time when I was 17 I, had, I got meningitis and this was the sort of only book that I, I sort of had with me and it's the only book I wanted and it sort of saw me through those kind of rather dodgy weeks um, when, I, when I was really quite ill so I would have Robert Hughes and Carl Sagan uh, and I'm a big fan of Dorothy Parker so I would have Dorothy Parker along as well who I think would keep the boys under control Thanks to Alex for his time. That's about it for this week's episode. But remember, you can like and subscribe to this podcast via Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search University of Brighton. Thanks for listening.